More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. On President Joe Biden's watch, inflation has gone through the roof. Gas prices are at an all-time high, and the stock market is looking like a bloodbath. So what's the White House's plan for stopping this economic freefall? Doesn't seem to have one. Oh, other than blaming Republicans and Putin. Friends, it's time for Hold the Line. I don't want to hear any more of these lies about reckless spending. We're changing people's lives. Welcome to Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. He's changing lives, all right, just not for the better, that's for sure. You see the economic numbers and these imbecile Democrats trying to pretend that Oh, things are great. We're in a good position now to tackle inflation. Don't worry. We've got this in hand. What country are they living in or what reality are they operating in? Because it's not the one the rest of us are. There are clearly enormous challenges right now in the economy for folks who can afford those challenges the least. You have inflation at the highest it has been in decades. You also have producer inflation high which means that you're gonna have increases in prices still coming down the line. Everybody understands that we're also on the precipice of what could well be a recession. We'll see when the GDP numbers come out. And even if we don't hit a recession this quarter, many are saying it's inevitable now that either this year or next year there will be a recession. Biden, on the other hand, is out there saying, oh, don't worry, this is, this is all going according to plan. They've made so much progress. Watch. Is this 
Under my plan for the economy, we've made extraordinary progress. And we put America in a position to tackle a worldwide problem is worse everywhere but here, inflation. Uh, now they're in a good position to tackle inflation. Really? What was the last 18 months? Was he, was he not the president? Was he not in a good position? Oh, this is going according to plan. This is what he wanted. Spend so much money, do so much financial engineering with the lockdowns, the stay at home, the $2 trillion, all that stuff. And Biden thought we're such a good idea. Really? We see now. It's not a good idea at all. So what is he doing? I mean, at the, on the one hand, he's essentially living in an alternate reality. Because what else is he going to say? I'm not very smart. I never should have taken this job. This was a bad idea for America. I mean, that would be true, but he's not going to say that. So he's just going to start making stuff up. I mean, here's an example, which is just total malarkey to borrow a Bidenism. He claims that Americans have more savings now than ever before. Watch. Since I took office to your help, families are carrying less debt nationwide. They have more savings nationwide. More Americans applied for new small businesses last year than ever before in American history. 5.4 million new small business applications. Jobs and companies are coming home again. We're making Buy American a reality. I mean, no one believed that this is an accurate reflection of what's really happening. I would also want to ask Joe Biden, how many of the people applying for new business uh, licenses were wiped out of their previous business because of pandemic lockdowns? Just wondering. Did they ever, they ever look at that? Oh, no, he likes to tell you he created 8 million jobs. By that, he means the government no longer mandated the shutdown of entire sectors of the economy, which was completely, not only pointless, but destructive. Didn't help us, only hurt us. But they don't want to talk about that. By the way, CNBC headline from just two weeks ago about Biden's, they've got more savings now. Americans now have an average of $9,000 less in savings than they did last year. That's a lot for, for a lot of folks. $9,000 in savings, by the way, that, that covers uh, months of expenses. So if you had that $9,000 of savings, you might have a cushion now to carry you three months, six months, maybe longer. But Biden, he just wants to make it up as he goes along. So what does he do here? Obviously, on the one hand, he's going to tell you the stuff that's just not true. We gave you a perfect example of that, unless CNBC is, you know, right-wing anti-Biden stuff. And then you also have the scapegoating, the blame game, the blame shifting. The Biden regime that wanted so badly to be in charge because they were going to do a great job. They're going to build back better from the middle out and all this other garbage that you heard Biden saying from day one of his presidency. It's not true. It didn't work. Well, instead of admitting that it's not true, it didn't work, they're going to start blaming people. Like, for example, here, Biden says, if only he could get his agenda through, everything would be so much better. But the ultra MAGA people, such a cool name, ultra MAGA, they're standing in the way. Look, I believe in bipartisanship, but I have no illusions about this Republican Party, the MAGA Party. I've been able to bring some Republicans along on parts of my plan. But the fact is, Republicans in Congress are still in the grip of the ultra-MAGA agenda. Trump's not even in office. What, what, what ultra-MAGA agenda? They're, they're in the grip of the stop destroying the economy, you old idiot. That's what they're in the grip of. Agenda. Okay? This is crazy. But what else are they going to say? Uh, what are they going to do? Oh, Biden's got an idea to turn everything around, of course. And that's going to be when we're about to hit a recession, and we already have high inflation, we're likely to see stagflation coming up here pretty soon. 
Oh yeah, it's gonna get ugly, folks. Biden's talking about, you know what we should do? Raise taxes on corporations. If only they paid their fair share, we wouldn't be in this problem, watch. Look, we can do all this. I'm asking, all I'm asking is for the largest corporations and the wealthiest Americans to begin to pay their fair share in taxes. I'm deadly earnest. Anybody out there think the tax system is fair? Raise your hand. If the tax system is so unfair, why don't we have a flat tax? Why not? Why not just do that? Oh, because Democrats want to socially engineer through the tax code. We already have a very progressive tax code, as we all know. But he says it's not fair. All right, let's, let's get rid of all the different loopholes, all the different games. Oh, no, but big Democrat donors like that stuff because they want to talk about raising taxes on people who are middle class, who are building their wealth over time. They want to raise taxes on everybody, and they don't want to pay those taxes themselves, though. They always got to have the carve-outs, you see. Yeah, that's the game that is played here all the time. Another game that's played by these Democrats in the White House is to just make it up as they go along. I mean, the, there's the blame shifting, and then there's the, as I said, there's the lies, there's the blame shifting, and then there's just delusion, right? It's a lie to say Americans have more savings now than they ever had before, as we all know, that's just not true. Um, they had substantially more savings a year ago. It's blame shifting to say that Republicans stand in the way of the agenda. Democrats can pass whatever they want when it comes to spending, and they did. It was Democrats like Joe Manchin in the Senate who stood in the way of even more crazy spending. It's not Republicans' fault. The Democrats did what they wanted to do. Ah, but then you have just delusion, uh, which is something that the White House is increasingly adopting as a means of trying to uh, address the plummeting polls. Here is the uh, new White House press secretary, relatively new White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, saying that America is in the midst of a historic economic boom, guys. Yeah, sure. Watch. Okay, so as you say that Americans are well positioned to weather this stock market decline, what is the president's message to somebody who might want to retire, but their 401k is getting wiped out? So we know, we know that, the, that high prices are having a real effect on people's lives. We get that. And we are incredibly focused on doing everything that we can to make sure that it, the economy is working for every American people. But we are coming out of the strongest job market in, in American history, and that matters. And that, a lot of that is thanks to the American Rescue Plan, which only Democrats uh, voted for that, Republicans did not. And it led to uh, this, this economic boom, this historic economic boom that we're seeing with jobs. Yeah, it's going great, guys. Don't worry about all the stuff that you're seeing, all those numbers. When, when we're in a recession, by the way, just wait for her to say, we're in a, the best recession we've been in in a long time. Expect people to clap. Let's talk about protecting your home for a minute. You know that I'm skeptical by nature, so when I first heard about home title theft and the idea that thieves can literally steal your home, I was like, really? Can some cyber criminal really forge my name off the title of my home and take over as the new owner? Turns out, yeah, he can. It's not as rare as you'd think. According to the FBI, this crime is growing faster than credit card fraud, and you're not covered by homeowner's insurance or common identity theft programs. Home Title Lock earned my trust. Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title. The instant they detect anyone tampering with their home's title, they mobilize to help shut it down. So here's what I urge you to do. Number one, go to HomeTitleLock.com and read the testimonials from FBI agents and government officials. And number two, 
register your home address to see if you're already a victim and don't even know it. When you protect your home, tell them Buck Sexton sent you to get my listener discount. HomeTitleLock.com. That's HomeTitleLock.com. It's unclear what the Russians are fighting for except to advance the whims of Vladimir Putin and the bizarre uh, belief that Ukraine is not a sovereign independent country and needs to be subsumed somehow into Russia. So uh, I am convinced and confident uh, that at the end of the day, uh, Ukraine's independence, Ukraine's sovereignty uh, will prevail. Secretary of State Antony Blinken saying it is unclear what the Russians are fighting for as Ukraine now says the Kremlin controls about 80% of a fiercely contested city in the east. According to a regional official, Ukrainian forces have been pushed to the industrial outskirts of the city because of the scorched earth methods and heavy artillery the Russians are using. Joining now to talk about what's actually going on in the Russia-Ukraine war and what Putin's intent is with all this senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Bill Roggio. Bill, good to see you again. Great to see you, Bob. Thanks for having me on. So, so before we get into what, one thing I definitely want to talk about today is what the U.S. policy response and all that has really led to and, and been up to this point. Can you just give us a battlefield update? What is actually happening in this conflict that's getting far less media attention than it was even a month ago? Yeah, absolutely, Buck. Uh, you know, look, the, the defense of Kiev was a both a military and a propaganda victory for the Ukrainians, but I think it's had the effect of people thinking, well, they they won, they drove, they stopped the Russian advance, and you know this one's over. Let's move on to the next thing. Let's move on to the next hashtag, the next Twitter trend, the next TikTok. But the war goes on. The Russians have regrouped. They are fighting according to their doctrine, which they didn't really do around Kiev. And that means bringing up the artillery, massing their forces, and grinding it out. And it's having an effect right now. They're they are advancing against Ukrainians. Ukrainians are saying they're losing 100 to 200 soldiers a day and up to 1,000 wounded per day. These are unsustainable casualties in the, in the medium to long term for the Ukrainians. The Russians have three times more people, three times more soldiers. Sometimes quantity has a quality of its own. And that's what we're seeing in the east. The Russians are looking to take control of that Donbass region. It's the two provinces. Um, in, in the West, but I think they want more. They already control parts of the South. They're looking to break the Ukrainian military. And if the Ukrainians aren't careful, the Russians can break out and, and advance further West. Look, this war has taken a lot of crazy turns. You know, everyone thought the Russians, me included, were going to be successful in the beginning. The Ukrainians held, but now the opposite seems to be happening. So what would it take yeah, from what we know right now, based on Putin's aims and, and the realities of the military situation on the ground, how could a, a negotiated settlement work at this point? Or, or, you know, a ceasefire and then some more permanent status. What, do we know what that would look like? It, it feels like the Biden administration never even talks about this as an intermediary. The Biden administration, yeah, you're absolutely correct, Buck. The, the Biden administration, their position is, these, the negotiations and what a negotiated settlement look, will look like is up to the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians' position is we're going to drive the Russians out of the country. We're going to take back the Crimea and take part of those occupied areas that post-2014 the Russians took control of. But that isn't the military reality on the ground. And I don't think that Putin is willing to stop at this point in time. So I don't think negotiations are really even on the, the table 
neither is looking for a ceasefire, although I do think the Ukrainians would be more likely to take one than the Russians at this point. Um, I, I don't think you're at that point in this conflict where negotiations will work. And I don't think either side, I think they're, they're years apart, um, or, you know, hundreds of miles apart when it comes to negotiations here. Okay, today, uh, President Biden announced an additional $1 billion to Ukraine. He said, I informed President Zelensky that the United States is providing another billion in security assistance, including additional artillery and coastal defense weapons, as well as ammunition for the artillery and advanced rocket systems. The president also announced an additional $225 million in humanitarian assistance to help people in Ukraine, including by supplying safe drinking water, critical medical supplies, and health care, food, shelter, etc. Um, are, are, we, are we just essentially allowing the Ukrainians to continue to try to hold the line, or is there really any, to, to the point before about their efforts to kick the Russians out of the country entirely, is that even vaguely realistic? I don't think at this point in time it's realistic. Look, a month ago, everyone was talking about Ukrainian victory, and I was very skeptical at that point in time. And I remain more so to that. Um, and these, the weapon systems that we're pour, pouring in, actually not pouring in, the problem is, is they're coming in piecemeal. They're not coming in quick enough. The, the Ukrainians can't concentrate those weapon systems to have a real effect. It's only a, having an effect on the margins. Um, it's not halting the Russian advance. So we, we do at some point have to question how much money can we keep pouring down this hole in the hopes that the Ukrainians could stop the Russians? I, look, I'm all for the Ukrainians holding back the Russians. I'm all for helping them drive out the country. But I'm not sure what the strategy is. And the reality is, and we've been seeing reporting on this, including at the New York Times, that the Biden administration is in the dark about what the actual Ukrainian strategy is. And if they think they have an understanding what they, what they are seeing, they don't believe it's realistic. By the way, there's been some Biden administration officials who are now privately, this is reported uh, today, expressing concerns that rather than dissuading the Kremlin with the sanctions the Biden administration put forward, the penalties are exacerbating inflation here, worsening food insecurity around the world, and punishing ordinary Russians more than Putin or his allies. What do you make of that? What's your assessment of that possibility? Yeah, I think the... The um, our assessment or the administration's assessment on the efficacy of the sanctions from the very beginning was unrealistic. They felt that this would be a deal, a devastating blow to the Russian economy. But I think it's had a unifying effect within Russia. The people have rallied behind the government because of these sanctions. Um, it is showing them, the Russian people, that the, the U.S. and the West are against them. And that's, that's helping them support their country. The, and also, with the rise in oil prices, obviously, we all are seeing that. The Russians have more foreign currency reserves today than they had a, a year ago. It's triple the, the amount. I believe they're somewhere over $100 billion now. They're making money off this war. They're funding their war. The sanctions did not have the effect. Maybe in the long term, in the medium term, they will hurt the Russians. But today, these, were, these are not weapons that have an immediate effect. It almost sounds like you're saying, Bill, and I just want to be clear, that here we are months into the war that started in January of 2022. We're basically, let's say, six months in, and the Russian economy is almost in a, in a better place, or at least pretty status quo compared to where it was? I, would, I mean, the ruble is, is up, 
I'm not saying the economy is better. I think there's going to be longer term implications. They're going to have difficulties with imports. But some of this they can work around with China. I would say perhaps it's a push, Buck. I, 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 it's really difficult to assess this. I do think it will hurt the Russians in ways in the long term. But if I evaluate this today, the sanctions have not had the desired effect. Have sanctions, just as a, as a point of, uh, of interest and maybe trivia for the, have sanctions ever had the desired effect? Have we ever seen it do exactly what it was? I know they would say it's a tool, but has the tool worked? I am very skeptical of sanctions in general. In certain situations, they can be effective. I think sanctions did hurt Iran, at least in the long haul. But the problem is, is if you don't pursue them, if you don't, you know, if you allow workarounds, this is what we've done with sanctions. And if you just rely on sanctions alone, it's not enough. They well, don't always, work in those protections. Always appreciate the perspective. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Buck. Have a great day. Uh, first, I want to talk to you about protecting your online data. A lot of companies promise your privacy is guaranteed, but we know that's not true. That's why you need a new privacy and cybersecurity application tool called Secure. It's spelled S-E-K-U-R. Secure is using proprietary encryption and offering secure instant messaging and email. With Secure, all of your communications based on servers and data centers hosted in Switzerland without using any of the big tech platforms. Privacy is a big issue now. Without real security, people can read your emails, your messages, even your bank information. Secure will never mind your data, never ask for your phone number. You can send emails to your doctor, banker, lawyer, or anyone else with total confidence you're not being spied on. Secure is your solution to stop the constant theft of your digital identity. Costs only $5 for the messenger, only $10 for the messenger and email combination package. Go to secure.com and take back your privacy today. That's S-E-K-U-R.com and use promo code BUCK for 25% off. We'll be right back with more Hold the Line. Soaring inflation has prompted the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point, the biggest rate hike in nearly 30 years. Despite this news, the Federal Reserve chairman says he's still optimistic. Watch. You see some, some things getting, sales going down, but overall, spending is very strong. The consumer's in really good shape financially. They're spending. There's no sign of a broader slowdown that I can see in the economy. People are talking about it a lot. Consumer confidence is very low. That's probably related to gas prices. We see the economy slowing a bit, but still growth levels, healthy growth levels. Join me now with Reaction, president of the Mises Institute, Jeff Deist. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Well, I hope they're spending because the Fed and Congress created more than 10 trillion bucks in the last two years. So I, I assume people are spending. You know what they're not doing, Buck, is saving. Unfortunately, U.S. savings rights are basically decimated at this point. So I, I don't really uh, share his optimism on the consumer side. Yeah, I, I wanted you to just react to that part of it. It sounds like he's saying, you know, there's a lot of good stuff going on in the economy. If you were to just walk around and ask anybody who has to buy groceries, gas, pay rent, or the mortgage, uh, they don't feel that way. Yeah, isn't that interesting how it's very, very hard to fool people, especially when the two big ticket items in our face every day, gas and groceries, that's awfully hard to fool people with. And you know, I don't see how there's any way between now and the midterms, let's say, or even really between now and 2024, that that changes. If I were Biden, I would be a little more contrite like Janet Yellen. I would be saying, look, I realize there's pain out there, but we're trying X, Y, and Z. And he seems to be you know, trying to say it's the Chinese or the Russians or the Republicans won't vote for his spending plan or whatever it is. So, uh, I mean, people said.
some things are rough. And when this narcotic of all the COVID stimulus completely wears off, I think it's going to be a hangover. I mean, the Fox News poll that we just pulled from uh, from today on the condition of the economy shows that 18% think it's excellent or good. I think they also tend to triple mask and, and watch a lot of MSNBC. 82% are saying it's only fair and, uh, or poor. So to my earlier point, I mean, the polling shows that people are unhappy with this. And the White mm-hmm. House seems to be playing as much hide the football as they possibly can, distract people. There's all the January 6th stuff. Here's White House economic advisor Brian Deese, who seemed to just dodge the question on whether, on when rather, Biden will be able to get inflation down. Watch. Give us a time frame. We're at 8.6 in inflation right now. When do you expect to see inflation that is in the 2% range based on everything that you are doing in your plan? When will that happen? Well, look, there's a lot of predictions out there, most independent uh, projections you've, you've seen and we analyze as well. What I can tell you is this that right now, the most constructive steps that Congress and the executive branch can take to help support what the Fed is trying to do are to lower the costs that families face directly and to lower the federal deficit. And we have laid out a very specific plan to do that. Uh, What is is this lower cost that family, like is the government gonna, are we gonna start going full Venezuela and have price controls? What is he even talking about? Yeah, I think he's talking about spending. I think that at the end of the day, that's what government knows how to do is spend money. So when they say the average family of four is spending $4,600 more a year, let's say, for gas and groceries, I think they plan on giving us all a check for that or something along those lines. But but didn't didn't that kind of cause the problem, Jeff, in the first place? Yes. I mean, it really is interesting that they want to continue this sort of tone-deaf rhetoric. And I, I guess I'm a little surprised because... I'm a little cynical sometimes that are the midterms going to be about abortion or guns or trans, for God's sake, you know, and I think they're doing everything in their power to make it about that. But maybe when you look at out there, you get outside the coastal areas, you get outside the beltway and everything's far apart and people have pickup trucks and, you know, people shop at Walmart, not Whole Foods. Man, oh man, you know, just a few hundred bucks a month, every month, that that really becomes serious, I think, for Biden pretty quick. The White House Press Secretary, uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre, responded this way when she was asked if Biden believes the economy is in a stable and steady growth period. Here's what she said. The Federal Reserve is predicting that uh, growth, GDP growth for the next two years will be 1.7%, under 2%, two, under 2% for the next three years. So is this what the president considers stable and steady growth? What I can tell you is that uh, we believe that we are in a transition right now coming out of a uh, economic uh, uh, recovery, a historic economic recovery, uh, because of the work that the president has done this past year and a half. And so we believe that we'll be in that transition. We're going into that transition of stable and steady growth. I mean, it's been 18 months of a Biden presidency. So are we in the transition now? Because... Biden was talking about how great the stock market was six months ago. Well, if you recall, Obama was able to do this for almost his whole first term to say that he inherited the 0708 mess, the financial crisis that somehow George Bush bequeathed to him. So I think this wears off pretty quick. And it just goes to show you, you know, never, ever, ever elect a senator president. I mean, this guy spent, he spent literally the last 40 years of his life between Dover, Delaware and the Capitol, 
and then overseas junkets. I mean, I think it really comes from the top down. I think they've been so focused on social issues and woke for so long that, that the economy is almost a secondary thing to them. And, and I think Biden's aloofness it really manifests all the way down through his administration. People are figuring out, it seems, that Biden's not so good at this. Uh, here's even a CNN reporter who is uh, laying out some of the facts and reality here. Watch this one. Put the, this inflation in, in context. How bad is the surge in prices? I, it's awful. I mean, it's awful. And how people feel about it is even worse. You know, you look at the consumer sentiment right now. And what do you see? This is the worst consumer sentiment ever measured by the University of Michigan, going all the way back since 1952. Wow. How does President Biden's performance rate? Awful. I mean, that, I, mean, I knew that was the answer. The but. answer is awful. I mean, you know, I'll compare it to Carter at this point, his presidency, right? Look at the disapproval rating Joe Biden has on inflation right now. Wow. It's over 70 percent. Carter, Carter was not even there at this point in mid-1978. When you're doing worse than Jimmy Carter's doing in the minds of Americans on inflation, you know that they're holding you responsible. Oh, but I thought the White mm. House said we were in a transition, Jeff. Yeah, isn't it interesting how... The Democrats used to be the party of blue collar factory guys, and now they're the party of the gender studies department. They're the they're the party of BlackRock. They're the party of Wall Street. And I think they've lost their populist edge. They, they really don't have any connection to every man. And let's be honest, they're not so concerned about every man when that every man happens to be a white Trumper in a red state. They don't much like them. Uh, so th this is this is, I think, dawning on them. I think this is what you're starting to see. And that's why I believe uh, outlets like The Atlantic are starting to say, well, gee, Joe Biden should say he's not running again. Uh, and that would liberate him. I think they're very I think they're starting to grasp the problem. Indeed. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Excellent. Thank you. A nasty civil war has broken out among writers at The Washington Post. It all started last week when Post reporter David Weigel retweeted a joke that read, every girl is bi, you just have to figure out if it's polar or sexual. Okay, a bit off color, but of course, the Twitter mob was quick to react to the retweet, and Weigel, who has been suspended for a month without pay, was forced to apologize. Enter Felicia Sonmez, a Washington Post political reporter, who decided to add to the pylon as well as bash the Washington Post itself. She tweeted, fantastic to work at a news outlet where retweets like this are allowed. The tweets have now led to almost a week of open warfare between writers supporting Sonmez and others who are coming to the newspaper's defense. Do me now to break this all down, host of the First Watch podcast, Steve Krakauer. Steve, thanks for being here, man. Oh, fuck, this is, this is a good one. <laughs> this is classic. Yeah, this, this is quite a... Quite a melee inside of the Bezos post. What's what happened? I mean, we gave the basic outline, but how'd this go down? Yeah, no, and that, that's that's how it all started on on Friday. You know, Dave does, tweets constantly. I mean, it, we have to preface all of this by saying it involves a lot of people who spend way, way, way too much time on their phones on Twitter. Fresh air could really solve a lot of problems in this in this entire war that's happening. But okay, Dave's on there, tweets that joke. Felicia, who's been involved actually in a lawsuit with the Washington Post, which was recently dismissed, but still works there. She then goes on, and I, and I, I don't want to like 
there were hundreds of tweets that she has put out about this story in the last week. She has just gone, you know, scorched earth war against her own paper. And they have tried, the, the new female editor, Sally Busby, has tried multiple times to say, look, we respect what you've done. Suspended Dave Weigel, you know, for a month without pay for a stupid retweet, which he immediately unretweeted and apologized for. Not enough. She, they, she has been asked, Felicia has been asked multiple times to stop arguing about this on Twitter. Maybe, you know, have a conversation offline about it. No, no, that is not happening. And now, as you mentioned, there's a, there are there's these camps that we're seeing, right? There are the people who are saying almost propaganda messages about how great it is to work with the humans at the Washington Post and all our friends, and it's so nice. And then Felicia and her friends being like, look at these people, all they are are white and entitled, and they don't know what it's really like to be at the Washington Post. By the way, Felicia is white as well. It's, it's a total cluster, and it's, it's hilarious from the outside. So you had uh, this tweet from one writer, Jose Del Real, accusing Sonmez of cruelty. He tweeted, fighting sexism and misogyny matters deeply to me. I will always admire your bravery in sharing your story, and I support your fight against retribution for doing so. Entirely separately, I hope you reconsider the cruelty you regularly unleash against colleagues. Ooh, what was that all about? Yeah, Jose Del Real, who, who identified himself in that conversation as the only Mexican, and by the way, he's gay as well, uh, on the Washington Post national desk. This is uh, Pride Month. Felicia Lynn turned her, her sights onto him, and she just went after him, and she is still going after him. He, he then had to shut down his account, lock it, and, and when, when I tell you that she's not satisfied, I mean, she will not be satisfied until this guy, this gay Mexican colleague of hers, is suspended as well for daring to, to challenge her in that way. So yeah, no, no, it, it, he is now in her sights. There's multiple people that she's now taking it out on, including the dozens of people that we saw earlier this week tweeting messages of support for the Washington Post saying, you know, we're not perfect, but we try to get it right and we try to be a place for inclusivity. None of that's good enough. All those people are, are Felicia just wants to just you know, knock them down one by one. And I, I don't know what you could do. I mean, obviously, you could fire Felicia, and then he, she will sue the newspaper again. But it's an HR nightmare that's playing out on Twitter for everyone to see, rather than behind the scenes, like a lot of these things used to do, or like normal people might actually engage with their colleagues in that way behind the scenes. I have a problem with this. No, no, Felicia, it's all about gaining more and more followers and more and more clout that she seems to be getting from this whole ordeal. Washington Post executive editor Sally Busby sent a memo to the newsroom apparently this week. She wrote, we do not tolerate colleagues attacking colleagues either face-to-face -face or online. Respect for others is critical to any civil society, including our newsroom. The newsroom social media policy points specifically to the need for collegiality. I have a feeling though that the collegiality clause, that's not gonna be enforced the same way the you better not be sexist or make any jokes I don't like or else clause. No, no, no. The, 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 if, if it was being enforced, I think Felicia would be no longer employed at the Washington Post uh, or at least be suspended like her buddy Dave, who, by the way, she recently shared a byline with. She identified Dave in her original tweet storm as a good friend of hers. <laughs> this is what she's done to a person who's a good friend of hers. And I, I don't want to make it about Felicia Sanmez. I mean, look, she obviously, I, I think that there's some serious. She seems like a lunatic. Here. I, I mean, I'll say it. You don't have to say yeah. it. She seems like a crazy person to I, me. I look at her, I look at Taylor Lorenz, who, who, by the way, has actually stayed mostly out of the fray, but is her colleague uh, at the Washington Post, who also constantly gets herself in these, in these 
sort of reality TV journalism wars that are happening and playing out on Twitter. It's about the Washington Post and their, as you mentioned, their hypocrisy in applying the rules. I mean, if you would imagine that if Felicia was doing this, but she was not who she was and she was Dave Weigel or she was someone else in the newsroom and just was unrepentant about attacking her own colleagues publicly, there would be repercussions. But in this case, we're now on day seven of this and she's still going. She just keeps going and going and going. I definitely have to ask you as well, uh, Steve, about the primetime January 6th committee presentation tonight. Uh, I don't think it's going to be the greatest show on earth, that's for sure. Democrats are trying to pump this thing up like it's the Super Bowl. What are you expecting? What's going to happen? Yeah, the, the biggest tell in all of this is the fact that they have moved a congressional hearing from a normal time in the morning or the afternoon to prime time, 8 p.m. tonight on every channel. And they've gone and hired the former head of ABC News, James Goldston, to produce this hearing. I mean, it's completely absurd and outlandish and so over the top and hyperbolic. It's you, you can imagine that this is what they have to do to try to gin up interest in it, to try to, to you know, make some headlines from it, or maybe try to get some, some you know, wind at the sails of the Democrats' 2022 plans. I don't expect a lot. Look, I, I, I'll be tuning in. I'm probably one of the very few people who's interested in this from, you know, from my job. But I, I just can't imagine we're going to find out much new. And, and the, the most telling thing is if we were going to find anything new, shouldn't they have told us already? Why, why do we need to hold it until 8 p.m. on Thursday night? You know, oh, it's not going to conflict with the NBA finals. You know, that was last night. That's tomorrow night. No, no, this is the, this is the January 6th commission's big night to reveal something. I'd be shocked if we find anything we haven't already seen. And it's just the same rehash of what we've heard for the last 17 months about a single riot that happened at the Capitol. I don't think it's going to be bombshells. I think it's going to be nothing burgers. But Steve and I are going to be watching closely, so I'll have to have you back to talk about what went down. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks, Buck. Shortage of aluminum cans and manufacturers having a tough time getting raw ingredients has led to a pet food shortage across the country. Biden is still playing the mask charade game, by the way. These stories in quick hits. Let's get into it. Look, masks are dumb. We all know it. Think about it for a little, a little bit. They're telling you, uh, as of a couple of days ago, the CDC was saying, mask up to prevent monkeypox. There have been 20 monkeypox cases roughly in the whole country, and it's spread by close skin-to-skin contact. But mask up to prevent monkeypox? It just doesn't make any sense, right? But the whole mask thing now is just turned into a obey. Do what we tell you to do. You know, mask up between bites. Yeah, that's really scientific, because when you're eating your sandwich, you're not breathing in the same air that you would be if you didn't have the mask on before that. It's all so stupid, folks. And we keep getting more and more evidence of this as political and virtue signaling instead of having anything to do with epidemiology or science. And this is a great example of it. I mean, Joe Biden, who I assume is now quad-vaxxed, right? First dose, second dose, booster, and now probably another booster, you know, super boosted. Uh, here he is backstage at the Jimmy Kimmel show, and you'll, you'll see he makes sure as the cameras are on that he takes off his mask to show that he's wearing a mask backstage. But why? He's walking to sit down with Jimmy Kimmel. What, is, what point does that make? Well, just, you know, the smart people wear masks, the dumb people think. Here's Joe Biden. The 46th president of the United States, Joe Biden. <laughs>
to take that mask off. And why not leave it on for the interview? Why does he want to expose Jimmy Kimmel to possible COVID? Oh my gosh. It's amazing, isn't it? And this is like Joe Biden who wears a mask outside alone and then takes it off when he goes indoors in the White House, which he frequently does, by the way. Does anyone want to try to defend this? Does anyone think this is not stupid? I would love that person to say, Buck Sexton, let's have a debate over this. This is intelligent. What Joe Biden's doing makes sense. These are the people that were telling you you have to mask up on planes. They're all idiots and sheep. Anyway, here's a statement from a general manager at a pet store in Minnesota. Food brands are promising they're going to be, uh, get better in the next four and six months. Others are saying it might be up to a year before we see some of their products back in stock. It really is kind of a wave of one week. It's 10 brands. Another week, it may be a brand that has a shortage. So it really depends on a weekly basis. So there is a pet food shortage out there to add to the woes we've already seen from the baby formula shortage. Kathy Hochul, by the way, has this act. You know what? I'm going to say it. This is actually not bad. If they do a good job redesigning Penn Station, I would like that because Penn Station in New York City is gross. It used to be beautiful. They destroyed what was beautiful and replaced it with something gross. Grand Central is beautiful. They managed to at least keep that the way it is. But Penn Station is like, uh, you know, the seedy, not, not uh, aesthetically pleasing place in any regard. The governor of New York, who is not very smart, but maybe she can get something right here, has announced a rebuild plan for Penn Station but you described living in New York City in a way that got some people's attention. Watch. It'll be larger than the concourse space of Moynihan Hall and the Great Hall of Grand Central Terminal. And I love this best. 460-foot-high atrium and a skylight that reminds you that, yes, the heavens are out there still, despite the feeling that you may be living in hell. Okay. <laughs> okay. Kind of weird. I mean, New York City's not in its best moment right now, but that was just a weird statement. I didn't really know what she thought she was saying. Biden, by the way, bashed the, I'm sorry, DeSantis bashed the Biden administration for easing restrictions on Venezuelan oil, but not encouraging more domestic production. Watch. Most have gone up in Germany and these other, a lot of these other European countries because of the policies, because they're trying to do this. And someone's going to have to explain to me how you don't want energy from your own country because of global warming, but you can get it from Maduro and some of these thugs and somehow that, is that different oil? Or I mean, what am I missing here? Of course not, it's politics, it's ideology. And it's based on this notion that somehow you can run a modern economy uh, without using the energy re resources that we have. And we were energy independent prior to Biden taking office. And now that is changing in a big, big way. And you feel it at the pump. Uh, more than ever. Uh, it's, a, it's the highest I've ever seen gas in my life, and I was born and raised in Florida. That's it for tonight's Hold the Line. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is next. Shields high. Each morning, the President of the United States receives a highly classified briefing on the most important issues facing the country. It's called the President's Daily Brief, or PDB. It's delivered by America's spies and analysts. Well, now you can hear your very own PDB in the form of a podcast hosted by me, Brian Dean Wright, a former CIA operations officer. Each morning at 6 a.m. Eastern, I'll bring you 15 to 20 minutes of the most important issues facing the country giving you the critical intelligence and analysis you need to start your morning.
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. 